Welcome to Intangibles Podcast. I'm Steve Berg, your host. Success is driven by how as much as by what. How we communicate, how we lead, how we relate to our environment are all vitally important. Intangibles is a podcast that explores the underlying traits, qualities, and behaviors that improve the how. This is accomplished by finding the people who have studied and been successful practicing these soft skills and having informed conversations with them to get to what is learnable. Let's begin. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. That's a great quote from Henry Ford. The question is, how do we know what we think? The answer is that we talk to ourselves. Everyone has an inner voice. When that voice is negative valenced, it's called rumination or worry. Rumination is a compulsive rehash of past events. Worry is angst-ridden imagining of future events. When the voice has a positive valence, it's called self-talk. The inner voice talks fast and it talks often. According to one study, the rate at which we speak to ourselves is up to 4,000 words per minute. We talk to ourselves between a third and a half of the time that we're awake. Introspection simply means actively paying attention to one's own thoughts and feelings. It is in listening to ourselves that we know whether we think we can or think we can't. Dr. Ethan Cross is one of the world's leading experts on controlling the conscious mind. An award-winning professor at the University of Michigan and the Ross School of Business, he's the director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. He has participated in policy discussion at the White House and has been interviewed on CBS Evening News, Good Morning America, and NPR's Morning Edition. His pioneering research has been featured in the New York Times, The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the New England Journal of Medicine, and Science. He's completed his BA at the University of Pennsylvania and his PhD at Columbia University. Chatter, the voice in our head, why it matters, and how to harness it, is Dr. Cross's first book, and I'm told is now considered a bestseller. It is about how we can direct our inner voice in ways that will generate more positive outcomes and fewer negative ones. It is what we will be discussing today. Dr. Cross, welcome to Intangibles Podcast. Thanks for having me, Steve. Been looking forward to the discussion. Great. Is there anything that I did not mention about your background that you think we should add in or is important contextually? Only that I'm from Brooklyn, New York, given that I feel a connection to you sitting in New York City right now. So, But aside from that, I think you covered it really well. Yeah, you definitely reference the neighborhood in your book. So anybody who picks it up will 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 definitely get the vibe as well. Um, okay, let's start talking more about what the inner voice is and and why it's so important. Um, have at it. Sure. Um, so you know, I think of the inner voice as a, a type of Swiss Army knife of the mind. It it does lots of things for us, and lots of really good things. Um, what the inner voice refers to is our ability to silently use language, right? To talk to ourselves. And we do this to do many different things like at the most basic level, keep a, a nugget of information active in our head. So if I, if I gave you a phone number and I asked you to just repeat the phone number in your head, you repeat it silently, 209, like that's your inner voice. It's part of the mind's working, verbal working memory system, which is a system 
that all healthy minds have and need in order to function in the world. So inner voice, critical to that system. But then the inner voice does lots of other things. It helps us simulate and plan. So when I'm thinking about a big presentation I have to give, I'm rehearsing what I'm going to say in that presentation in my head. I'm then hearing what the annoying person in the audience, the question that they're going to ask me, and then I'm responding in my head to that person. Usually, truth be told, what I respond in my head to the obnoxious audience member is not what I would actually say. It's much more colorful. But right, so we're, we're using our inner voice to simulate as well. We also use the inner voice to control ourselves. You know, well, don't put this, don't do this, I should do that. When we like coach ourselves along through a difficult problem. And we use the inner voice to, to narrate the story of our lives. So, you know, we, people are, are meaning-making machines, right? We, we, we tend to experience the world without on autopilot until we stumble on something that we can't explain. Then we stop and we try to make sense of it. Why did they just reject me, right? Why did this happen to me? And we use language to help us do that. And our ability to make sense of our experiences, that, that gives rise to our sense of who we are, our identity. And our inner voice plays a critical role in that. So, so this inner voice that we have and this ability to talk to ourselves, it's a superpower. It's tremendous. Now, the catch is that when we struggle with things and we're experiencing lots of negative emotion, we often resort to this inner voice to find the way through our problems, but sometimes we end up getting stuck. So we turn our attention inward to make sense of our problems, but we don't find solutions. We just spin instead. We ruminate or worry or catastrophize as you hinted at earlier. And that gets at what I call chatter. Chatter refers to those negative thought loops that, that take this incredible tool and, and turn it into a torture device. And, um, and so I spent much of my career trying to figure out why does that happen? Why does, why does the inner voice morph into chatter at times? And most importantly, what tools exist to help to help us bring our internal conversations back on track when they when they falter? Yeah. So you you referenced this actually um, without using the specific words in your in your executive function, right? This is part is is executive function governing chatter or is chatter governing executive function? How does that work? Yeah. So the executive functions you could think of this as like the CEO of the brain. These are these are. Uh, neural systems that allow us to uh, keep information in mind, switch back and forth between different ideas, uh, inhibit ourselves from, from doing things we might not want to do. It's really a, a, an amazing feat of evolution that we have these executive functions. And one of the things that chatter does is, well, let me step back. Our executive functions are, 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 are they're kind of lazy, right? They only, they're only willing to work for short periods of time. We only have so much ability to, to think really carefully about something and concentrate, which is what our executive force functions underlie. And, and one of the really devastating things about chatter is that chatter consumes our executive functions. Here's the real world example of that to make this less abstract. Think about whoever's listening, think about a time when you're worried or ruminate about something and you decide you want to read a couple of pages in a book or a report, and you read read three or four pages, you get to the end, you're sure you've actually read the material, but you don't remember a damn thing that you've read. Steve, happened to you? Yeah, totally, all the time. Um, I do. I, I I have gotten to the point where I 
think, oh, I'm ruminating and I'll try and break those loops. But I know that I have my bucket has a finite of executive function. And if it's being ladled out in one place, it cannot be used in another place. And that's exactly the phenomenon. So, you know, the, the consequences of chatter are pretty extreme. And, and I say that without exaggerating. I don't tend, I don't like, I, I don't like to over-exaggerate claims, but, but I really think what chatter does is it, is it, is it knocks out several things in life that really make life worth living. And, and, and we've just described one, like our ability to focus at work or in school, or perform well on the ball field, right? When we're consumed with chatter, it disables us from using our mind in the way we want to use it to focus on the on the on the report or or practice and so forth. And so, so that's one way that it can really tank us. Right. All right. So tank us bad. Let's. Uh, I want to also, but hear from you about. Okay, um, we can influence. You know, that's the nature of this book is we can influence what were what our mind is starting to tell us, right? We can minimize chatter and we can do, so I'm, I want to get to the answer. Is it only making things less bad or can we actually, in fact, make things more good? It's the latter. And by making them less bad, we're making things better. So, you know, I've been talking a lot about, about chatter over the past month since my book came out and, and, and while researching it too. And, and one of the things that I often hear is, tell me how I can just turn my inner voice off. I just want silence. I don't want to have that conversation with myself. And my response to to people who say that is, I wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemy, right? Not having the ability to talk to yourself. Because as we discussed earlier, it allows you to do amazing things. I tell a, a story in the book about a woman who had a stroke that wiped out temporarily her ability to use language. Yeah. And, and at first she described the experience as euphoric, like no more worries, no more ruminations, what we all want, except along with that, she lost her ability to plan, to make sense of her experiences. And she felt disturbed as a result. So what we, the goal here is to reduce, well, eliminate the chatter and free up your inner voice to do what it does best, to help you problem solve, to help you innovate, to help you create. And so that's the goal. We're shifting the pendulum from the negative territory to the positive one. Right. So don't lose context, right? Which is what this woman had lost. But um, also at the same time, uh, don't give in to the dark side. That's right. That's right. Steer clear. And, And, you know, let me point out something else that I think is relevant here. Um, we often talk about in, 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 in the current popular culture, like the importance of being in the moment and, and mindfulness and meditation. When things aren't going good, just focus on the present. Be in the present as much as possible. Being in the present can be really good. And I'm an advocate of, of mindfulness and meditation. However, it's really important to understand, as you pointed out earlier, the human mind did not evolve to be in the moment all the time. To the contrary, yeah. we evolved the ability to go back in time and forward in time in our heads, to learn from our mistakes, plan from the future, and so forth and so on. And so the challenge that I think we face is we often get stuck when we're traveling in, our, in, in time in our minds, in the past, in the future. We get stuck. That's what chatter is. The trick is not to shut down mental time travel altogether. The trick is to figure out how can we help people travel in time more effectively, right? And that, if you can do that, then you got all the good stuff that comes with self-talk. All right. So let me press one more and then I'm going to kind of move on a little bit. The, so, so you gave me the answer, we can do more, you know, more good, more better. 
The question I'm wondering is how much more better? Are, are we talking about um, situations where we can kind of will ourselves, talk ourselves into running a marathon or, you know, into powering through a, a writing deadline that you, as you may, is this something that we can really, something that's out of the mean? Well, yeah, it's a great question and um, huge variability, number one, across people in terms of how much bang you're going to get for your buck with some of these shifts in our internal dialogue. I will say that even at the low end of the spectrum, though, if we're talking about small percentage differences, a, a few shifts and a few percentage points in how you feel is actually can be quite meaningful. Like a 5% improvement in how I feel can be quite consequ consequential. And so I think setting our expectation, I mean, if you ask me, I think set your expectation, like I'm going to try to feel better and I'm going to be happy if it's more than I expected. Don't, don't be searching though for magic bullets that um, rid your life of all negativity. I think that would be a bad thing. We want to be able to still feel negative at times, like a little, a small dose of anxiety is really, really useful, right? That, that motivates you to prepare. So it's about, it's about reining in the responses when they become too extreme. Um, so, uh, but you know, this, 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 this aspect of the conversation is in keeping with a, a, a theme of the book, which is there are no magic bullets, right? There are lots of different tools that you can use to consequentially improve the conversations you have with yourself, but you know, transformational, it depends. I, you know, I'm, I don't know. These, these bullets feel pretty magic, frankly, as I, as I've read them. So let's, 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 let's use that as our transition. All right. So, so it seems um, to me that a great deal of what you've studied and written um, about our ways that we can shift perspective, right? You were just talking about yeah. that shifting perspective um, and not only shift perspective, but gain a perspective on situations because oftentimes, um, you know, we're, it's right on top of us or we're right in the middle of it. And, and maybe we just don't have yeah. the right, you know, the right view on it. Uh, so, I mean, first of all, do I have that right? Is that, is that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got it exactly right. When we experience chatter, we zoom in on a problem so narrowly that we lose the bigger picture. We lose the per broader perspective that often provides us with solutions to, to lessen the chatter. Okay. All right. Good. So, would it be all right if I uh, mentioned some of the tools? Yeah, please. Um, okay, specific, all right, great. Let, let's let's do that. So there's, you know, one of the things that you talk about is distance self-talk, right? Yeah. So let's let's define that. And there's a number of great examples. Uh, pick any example that that, that kind of illustrates that for people. So distance self-talk involves coaching yourself through a problem, like you would talk to someone else, and actually using your name to do so really relying on language and your name and other non-first person pronouns, words like you, to shift your perspective effortlessly. So, all right, Ethan, come on, you're going to do this. And um, what's so interesting to me about this technique, first of all, it, it, it helps people combat chatter. You see reductions in their tendency to ruminate, they perform better under stress. You could see these effects in their brain and their subjective reports. But many people stumble on this technique without even knowing it in their lives. They use it and they're not even aware of it. Instead, it often gets made fun of, right? On, on Seinfeld, there's a whole episode of a self-talker, Jimmy, who would narrate his whole experience. Jimmy needs to do this. Um, there are so many examples of people doing this when they're under stress, when they're experiencing chatter. One of my favorites is Malala Yousafzai, the youngest uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner. Um, she recounted to, to John Stewart several years ago about 
What went through her head when she discovered that the Taliban were plotting to assassinate her? And she said something to the following effect. She said, you know, I used to think when the Tali would come, uh, you know, what would I do? And then I used to say to myself, if he comes, what would you do, Malala? And then I would answer, Malala, just take a shoe and hit him. And so what's captivating to me about that example is here you have a young, I think, 14-year-old girl contemplating the most chatter-provoking experience you could possibly imagine. Someone's coming to kill you. And what does she do? The moment the stressful part of the situation is happening in her head, she switches. She starts coaching herself through the problem like I would give advice to you or my kids or someone else. Yeah, she and separates so herself from it. It's a great example. And, you know, the book is chock full of other ones from LeBron James to, to Jennifer Lawrence doing this. But this is one tool that you could use. And, and this is a simple shift. And that's true of a lot of the tools that we talk about, I talk about in the book. These are small shifts that can have effects on how you think about yourself in the world. So I was running in the park on Tuesday and I, you know, just fresh off the book and I just started, I decided I would try to do that. Right. And I would, instead of normally my self-talk is first person, I, you know, come on, I can do it. um, And so I I did, I started shifting it and I, you know, fair, uh, full disclosure, it didn't have a huge effect, but I didn't really, I hadn't really brought myself into the weeds. Like I hadn't, I needed to be more out on the edge of when I really needed to find something extra. Um, but I, it is now, it is now policy that, that, that there's a, a mental policy shift that I can no longer self-talk in the, that I've got to, that I've got to do it distanced. I like it. I love it. There's actually, someone was, I was doing an interview recently. Someone told me about a study I hadn't heard of that recently came out on, on running and self-talk showing that these linguistic shifts can enhance, I think it was marathon performance or something like that. So very cool. So I'm, I'm friends with, a. um, editor of Wired Magazine, and he's a distance he's a distance runner, and I'm intending to have this conversation with him as well. Oh, neat. Cool. Um, so, um, all right. Um, okay, so instead of self-talk, there's, there's a number of techniques uh, that we can use to n- completely take ourselves out of the equation, like literally remove ourselves from the equation as opposed to distance, right? You know, um, I, I, I'm going to ask you to walk us uh, through a couple of them. Um, you kind of hinted at, um, as if you were giving advice as if it was a friend. Yeah. So, um, you know, think about what you would say to your best friend and then say that to yourself. And, you know, you can of course combine that with distant self-talk by using your name to really maximize it. But that's another tool that we can use. I want to touch on one thing real quick that you said though, Steve, about completely removing yourself from the situation. There's one, I think, subtle point that's worth emphasizing, which is in all these cases of these distancing tools that I talk about in the book, we are stepping back. We're we're really trying to separate ourselves, but we're still engaged with the situation and the emotions. And the reason I want to point that out is because we're not trying to get people to avoid their emotions. When I think about, all right, Ethan, how are you going to deal with a stressful interview? I assure you, I am still in touch with the, the negativity surrounding the apprehension here, but I'm taking the edge off and it's taking that edge off that's really important rather than totally you know, avoiding the emotions altogether, which could be problematic for other reasons. Right, yes. I, I think uh, what we're really getting at, and particularly within the, in the give your friend advice, you, know, you talk about the notion of, uh, there's an example in the book that someone has a problem and they can't seem to find their way through it. And then their friend has the exact same problem and they can easily find their way through it. Right. Just because, exactly right. because there's a, you know, 
uh, you know, they don't feel the stress upon themselves so much to do that, right? And if you can kind of use the same uh, gadget, the same machinery, then yeah. then you're going to be more effective. I, 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 understand, I understand what you're exactly saying. Exactly right. And you, you said it beautifully. And what's fascinating is, so I think many listeners are probably, or all listeners have had that experience. Like they can coach someone else better than they can coach themselves. We've evolved tools to be able to think about ourselves like another person. And when we activate those tools, we benefit it from it. Right. Okay. So um, the next one I'm actually quite curious about because of what you just explained about how you don't fully uh, separate your emotional component. Um, th there's a there's the discussion about um, pretending you're a fly on the wall, right? Kind of looking down on it. That kind of almost implies that there would be that kind of detachment. But, but well, there, there but definitely not. is a separation from the self. Like you're so you know when you're thinking about a past experience visual like we tap we tend to see visual images of those events you could close your eyes and see a snapshot of when i was rejected by whomever you know um rather than replaying those experiences through your own eyes you could actually see yourself in the scene and that gives you some mental space but what we do in our studies and in the in the research that looks at this is you have people step back see themselves from that flying wall perspective but then think about what that person you're looking at think about why they felt the way they did what were the reasons underlying their feelings? So you're still getting them to engage with the emotion. And that's the key. So it's, it's, it's almost like you're stepping back in order to then approach and dive in more effectively. You're not stepping back to avoid it. I think what you get out of that is um, a sense of intellectual honesty, if you want to know the truth. And, and it gets to the last one, the last one of the ones that at least that I want to talk about with regard to this distance is... Um, you, if you pretend you're a neutral third party trying to find an optimal solution... In my business, we often have to make uh, decisions where, you know, you've done all the work, you've got an emotional component, like you're kind of tied up in it, you know, you, you've, you've done all this work, you want it to work, right? And so you, you've made your decision and you're looking for a set of facts to support the decision instead of what are the facts, what decision should that lead to? So we're in a constant state of, of, of testing whether we're being intellectually honest. My sense is that, you know, when you are intellectually honest, you're going to make better decisions. And this is just a way of explaining how one remains intellectually honest about the situation. Yeah. So we, we, we've actually studied how this connects to the idea of wisdom and being wise. And I think in your line of work, people are hoping that you're making wise judgments, right? And that's what you're aspiring to do. And we've actually studied formally how distancing promotes wisdom. So the way we define wisdom is um, having intellectual humility, recognizing that there are limits to your own knowledge. That can be really useful, right, when making decisions. Uh, it also, another facet of wisdom is recognizing that the world's constantly changing, right? Like we've got to be prepared for the fluctuations of life, taking other people's perspectives. And taking this step back boosts all of those different ways of thinking about a situation. And so it's been linked with um, wiser thinking uh, consistently across studies. And so it's, it's very much consistent with what you're describing. Cool. You know, you're, you're a great interview because your last answer seems to be setting up the next question perfectly every time here. Um, so so th this question is about uh, perspective, frankly. And, you know, I, I always enjoy talking to people that have traveled a lot in their life. Um, it seems to me that they see, see things uh, much less myopically. Um, their personal choices seem to be much more broadly informed. 
you know, they're, they have a broader perspective. They're not just thinking from their narrow, what about myself? They're thinking about a greater good. Um, in the book, you talk a little bit about broader perspective, in a, but in a slightly different way. I think it ultimately has similar value in making good choices and, and, def, and dividing, defining good um, go-forward strategies. Um, uh, maybe, do you know what I'm referring to within the book specifically? Yeah, I oh, think so. Oh, so. Tracy and... Um, yeah, would you, yeah, would you comment on that? Yeah, there is, I tell the story in the book about this former student um, who was a really captivating student. Um, she, she was recruited out of high school to, to um, join the NSA. And NSA then, the NSA then paid for um, her education at Harvard with a few catches. She had to spend her spring break and summer vacations, you know, learning how to like scale buildings and splice antenna and really fascinating stuff. One among the most fun interviews that, uh, that I've ever had and, and a really fun student to teach. Uh, in any case, she was filled with chatter in college because she had these split demands. Like on the one hand, she's trying to be a college student, but, but the NSA is setting rules on how she can do that. She could only take certain classes she can't date any foreign nationals because maybe there'll be spies also. I mean, who? this changed my whole perception, by the way, of like the uh, Harvard undergrads and like how many of them are actually spies in training. Um, and oh, by the way, she had to maintain a certain grade point or they'll just yeah, pull the whole thing. That's right. If she doesn't, if she didn't, if she didn't maintain a certain GPA, they stop paying and she's got to pay everything back. And she came from from meager, meager means. And so she had no way to do it. And so she really struggled. And one, one, she stumbled on different tools for managing her chatter, some of which had to do with distancing. And one was to, she started traveling across the country and meeting with her relatives and learning about her history. And she met, she found out that she was a descendant of, of George Washington and spent some time in New Orleans with her like voodoo aunts and and all of these very rich experiences that helped helped her contextualize what she was going through right so on the one hand she's thinking wow this is tough nsa and harvard are are providing some pressure and to be clear like objectively that sounds like a pretty stressful situation but then she's thinking about the fact that she descended from slaves and she's thinking about look at how far i've come and that that broadened her perspective in ways that were useful and, and see, this is what I actually do right now, like to manage COVID anxiety and the pandemic, which I think is stressful for so many of us. I try to do this perspective broadening by thinking about like, well, what about the 1918 pandemic? Right? That was really bad. And guess what? It was worse than what we're dealing with and we made it through it. So that that's a, a pers- another way of shifting our perspective that can be really helpful. And so there are just so many ways of shifting perspectives. You could do it by traveling in time in your mind, like I just described. I think travel is probably another very useful tool for doing that too. Um, language is another. So so I talk about these different techniques in the book. Yeah, I'm a big fan of relative expectations, right? Um, you know, you know, it's t- today as we speak, it's uh, quote, middle high 40s and sunny in New York City. And, um, you know, generally it's kind of bleak at this time of year, um, you know, in, in, you know, late February, everybody wants the winter to be over and they're kind of dragging it around. Um, but on the other hand, last week it was in kind of the low thirties, right? It was gray. It was freezing cold, like relative, uh, you know, not so bad, right? Like my, my perspective is pretty good. Not so bad. Yeah. 
Um, so, so yeah, I think that I think that's kind of a mechanism um, that's important. You know, you just talked about time. Time is a you you can shift a lot of things. You can shift spatially, right? You can you can shift you know your view. You can you know, move your eyes. But time is another thing that you can use to gain perspective, right? That's um, right. Why why don't we just touch on that just a little bit? And I, I love continuums too. <laughs> yeah. Um, no. Well, you're absolutely right. And 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 there's actually research which shows that these different continuums of distance are related. So. So as you said, you could shift, um, you know, physically, like by going to different places, but linguistically we can shift temporally and visually. When you want to shift in terms of time, I, I just described one temporal shift, right? Going back in time in my head to put things in perspective. Uh, you could also go forward in time, which I do quite a bit, right? I think about nine months from now, I know exactly the beach that I'm going to be sitting on while I'm vaccinated with the three pina coladas that are on the on the on the little tray in the sand, and uh, life is good. And when I do that, what that does is it's not just a positive fantasy. There's that component, but it also makes it clear that what I'm experiencing right now is temporary. It will eventually pass, and that gives me hope. And we know that hope is a powerful bomb for our chatter. Yeah. So. Hope in the near term, but also so you your vision was beach and pina coladas. Um, in the case of some of the founders that I back, their vision could be successful exit. Right, I, you know this business has been turned over. My uh, totally. legacy is secure. My family is financially, um, you know, well positioned. Like just being able to think that forward, looking back on this, it's a bump in the road. That's exactly right. The the key is to to travel far enough in time so that you realize that what you're going through right now is temporary. It's, it's not, it's not the end all. And so time travel is particularly good when you're dealing with acute stressors that have an ending point, um, in more long-term stressors, there are other tools that are more effective. Great. All right. So, um, this isn't exactly a technique. This next thing I want to talk about, um, we were actually getting into it right before we started recording. I was like, no, 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 no. We got to save this. We got to save this. Oh. It's belief, right? Um, if we can convince ourselves of something and really believe it, not be like just told and be like, oh, yes, I believe it. If you genuinely believe it, it seems to me that there's proof, enough proof that we can go beyond what we normally think we might be capable of. And that's it's hugely powerful. So dig into that idea a little bit with me. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I'll echo that. I mean, I, I titled the final chapter of the book "Mind Magic," and and I and I meant magical in the awe-inspiring way because the research in this area is, to use the more technical term, mind-blowing. And and what I mean by that is there there is compelling research showing that, as you just said, if you can get a person to believe that they're going to feel a particular way it actually brings that feeling to fruition. And when I talk about feeling, I'm talking about depre less depression, less anxiety, fewer Parkinson's symptoms, right? I'm talking about placebo research where you give someone an object like a sugar pill and you tell them, if you take this, you will feel better. And if they believe you, it often has that effect. Now, placebos, of course, don't cure everything. There are limits on them. But in terms of, of the terrain within which they work, it is quite astounding. They can They've been shown to be effective for reducing symptoms of mild and moderate anxiety and depression, right? These are, I'm, 
billion dollar problems if we think about the costs and and a, and a sugar pill or or just getting the just having a doctor or a trusted person say you are going to feel better i know it because i've seen 100 people like you it's going to be fine if you buy into that it has that effect so um what does that all mean about the mind uh, what it means to me is the following it means that the ability of the mind to heal itself and our bodies is, is something that we're not tapping into under normal circumstances to our full, fullest potential. There are safe, there are safeguards, there are valves, if you will, that prevent us from unleashing this capacity. Um, what are those safeguards and valves? Doubt, you know, self-doubt, confidence. Um, why do they exist? Well, that's where it gets even more fascinating. If you think about like negative emotions, feeling bad, we don't like that feeling. Right, and, and, and we're motivated in general to reduce those negative emotions, but negative emotions in small doses are really, really useful. A little bit of anger when we're insulted, that's an adaptive response. It mobilizes us to respond to the situation as it needs to be dealt with. Same thing for anxiety or sadness. So emotions are functional. So what if you gave a person the ability to whenever they want, just turn their emotions off by believing something? They could live a life free of any negative feelings, and that would not be a good life. Evolution would suggest that those people would not survive. So what happened to the mind? What's the evolutionary story? The story is we've got this capacity, but it's kind of hard to use. But guess what? Cultures have figured out a back door to hack into this capacity to manipulate belief. And it comes in the form of lucky charms, and certain rituals and charismatic leaders who can manipulate our beliefs accordingly. Yeah. I mean, you, you were mentioning earlier about, look, you know, five or 6%, right? So let's just say it's beyond the threshold of just noticeable difference, right? Yeah. Like yeah. the idea that there's this mental wiggle room for you to create improvement of, I'm just going to out of air five or 6%. Crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, even if it's two or 3%, if it's a noticeable difference, like we we often struggle just to feel a little bit better, right? I mean, like it, it can be. I, I, I mean, I, I certainly think so. Yeah, you know, you talk about um, reframe, reframing reframing issues as challenges. Yeah, I think that's an important one because I think you know that's just a that's that's literally just a posture change, right? That, and it can be hugely such an valuable. One. And it's such an important one, and it's one that distant self talk often promotes. So so let me break that down because I agree it's really important. I'll give you the thirty second version of it. When you put in a person in a situation involving stress, they tend to ask themselves two questions subconsciously. What do I have to do and can I do it? If you ask yourself those two questions and you answer, can't do it, that's a threat response. It predicts a host of negative consequences, right? You withdraw, your body responds with stress and so forth. If you take those two questions, what do I have to do and can I do it? And you answer, yeah, I can do it. That's a challenge response and it predicts the mirror image set of consequences, all good. So, and, and we know that you can shift it, right? We can shift how people are making sense of the situation. Instead of saying to yourself, I can't do it, say, yeah, Ethan, you can do it. And then you should see benefits derived. The, to me, the fascinating thing about that is your, your resources didn't change, right? You didn't, nope. you didn't gain more power. You didn't gain more mental capacity. You didn't gain anything other than just going, it's our yeah. interpretation. Yeah, and interpretation. This, this is another really important point. You know, a lot of people, um, and and if you have, if we have parents who are listening to, and certainly kids, a lot of people don't realize that 
their thoughts aren't their destiny. When we're experiencing chatter, that doesn't mean we're destined to continue feeling this way, that we have agency and the ability to change how we're thinking about something to change the way we feel. It's often easier said than done, of course, and the tools in the book are designed to help people do that, but but we can change. And that's, I think, a very empowering idea. So we envisioned, in a, a moment ago, we envisioned what success is, right? Oh, in the future, it will be beaches and pina coladas. It will be successful exit. Um, we can also remind ourselves of past challenges too, right? Hey, totally. yeah, yeah. I've I've made it to the top of this mountain before. I, I've been around the block before, and and yeah. and that can that can be you know kind of reassuring. Yeah, that's that's my like one of my two step techniques, right? Before before a, a high stress interaction, first thing I think is, well, all right, it'll be over in two hours, and then I'm back to normal life. So that gives me some idea of stability. And then I think I've done this two hundred times before. And I'm still here and it's been okay. And, and, and the, you know, again, small shifts that really can change the way we deal with these situations in consequential ways. And knowing that you're a Michigan man, I will add in that that's why you bet on Tom Brady to win the Super Bowl, right? Because he's Go been blue. there six other times. That's right. It's pretty astounding. Yeah. Um, all right. So, look, I think as far as the tools and techniques, I, I, you know, I think we've got that the waterfront pretty well covered. There's just one other area that I, you know, I think will help people feel more confident in that. And, and that is, um, why these tools that we've just talked about, why do they work? Like not belief per se, but what's actually happening? What's the, the neurochemical response? What's the behavioral psychology um, that allows us to change our thought process, that allows us to change our, our stress uh, level and, our, and, 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 and alter our physiological response. If you could spend some time on that, it'd be helpful. Sure. Um, so the first, the, first, um, the first initial response is it's not the same set of neural mechanisms for all the different tools that I talk about in the book. Um, now, many of the tools do center on this idea of distancing, this ability to step back. And if you look in the brain at what's going on, when we, when we ask people to do that, what you see is you get a reduction in the activity level of a network of brain regions that are active when we're thinking about the self. Uh, this is called a, a default state network. There's a, there's a, there's a, net, a group of brain regions that when, you're, when you just attend to your own self, that network becomes more activated. We're reducing the activation level of that network. And, and we think that's what helps people become less immersed in the situation, what allows people to weigh in on the circumstances with more objectivity. We're reducing their self-involvement. And so that's a critical mechanism for many of these different tools. Um, but then there are, other, there are other pathways, like distance isn't the only pathway to, to hacking chatter. Uh, like one thing we didn't talk about is hacking chatter from the outside in. So, you know, when you're experiencing chatter, you feel out of control. Your thoughts don't feel like they're organized. So what we've learned is people can compensate for that experience by organizing their, their spaces around them. So it's like weird, crazy stuff. Like why am I, I'm a pretty not organized guy when it comes to my room. And yet when I'm struggling, I go and like clean the kitchen and put all my books away and alphabetize them. We're compensating there. And so that's a different pathway through which we've learned to regulate our chatter. And, it, and, it, and, and, and I bring that point up to make another even bigger point, but a really important one, which is there are no single tools, right? 
that we can rely on, one tool to help us manage our chatter in all situations. There are lots of different tools that we've evolved to possess to manage these internal conversations. I think the challenge that that people face, and I think scientists too, is to figure out, well, what are the what are the combinations of tools that work best for, for you in the different chatter-provoking situations you find yourself in? I, re- I regularly rely on quite a few to help me get over the chatter hump when I'm experiencing it. Yeah. So, I, you know, when I was in college, um, whenever I had a difficult situation, and I didn't realize at the time exactly that I was doing this, I would go and clean my room. And I, yeah. di- I had no idea why. Uh, only in retrospect um, yeah. did I realize. And, and the, the thing that I want to bring up about that, that you, that you kind of hinted at a little bit, is agency, right? Oftentimes, we kind of flip out a little bit when we feel we have no agency, right? Cleaning, I, I realize now that cleaning my room was a way for me to try to feel agency. Like, That's exactly, this is and something I had control over. And you succeeded, right? So Rafael Nadal says the hardest thing that he battles to do on the tennis court is control the, the voices in his head, right? It's not the other person he's competing against. It's, the, it's his own self and the voices that he hears. Not in a clinical schizophrenic sense, but in a chatter sense, right? And so what does he do? He does this. He orders his, he engages in very structured rituals and he carefully orders his water bottles, make sure they're positioned on a diagonal to the court and ever so perfectly, you know, lying between sets. So it's a way of asserting agency in another aspect of your life. And then you benefit from it as well in your mind. And, and that's, you know, we, we've, so, so with so many of these tools, Steve, We've stumbled on them. We do them often without even knowing them. I do the same thing. I didn't, until I started doing this work, I didn't understand why I cleaned when I was stressed. The value of the science here is it shines a spotlight on what all of these different tools are and it specifies how they work. And what that does is it gives us the opportunity to be a lot more deliberate about how to bring these tools into our life. And I think there's real value in that. You're exactly right. You, 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 you've got some tools but you don't exactly know what they're for, but all of a sudden you do know what they're for. And then you go, ah, all right. When, for this situation, I bring this tool out of the toolbox for this situation. And that's that you're, you're creating a more uh, efficient response. That's right. That's Um, right. Okay. So look, thank you for that. Um, in, uh, interest of time, I I know you've, you've got a couple more minutes here. Um, I always end my podcast with, uh, three final questions. Um, they're easy. So you shouldn't have a problem. Um, the, the first is, um, is there something specific about this topic that we're talking about that you think is important, kind of important enough that how could I not, how could I have had this conversation with you and we didn't bring this up? Like, what, did I miss anything that's really key here? Well, the only thing we didn't talk about is um, the role that other people play in helping us with our chatter because we're often really motivated to talk to other people about chatter when we experience it. And the quick version of this is that other people can be an amazing tool to help us, right? As we talked about before, it's not happening to them. They're in a position to weigh in, but they can often, they can also be a real liability. And in fact, the, the modal way, the way we typically talk to other people tends to predispose us to the more vulnerable form of talking. And and so how that works is this. Many people think that venting, venting our emotions, just letting it all out, dumping is is the way to feel better. 
Not true. Lots of research suggests that it's not true. What venting does, if I vent to you, if I call you up to share my negative feelings about something, that makes you and I feel really close and connected. That feels nice. But if I'm just rehashing what I felt about something bad, it's not making me feel better about it because it's not shifting my perspective at all. So the best kinds of conversations are, are when you find someone who you can share what you're going with through a little bit, but then they also help you see the bigger picture, help you look at it from different angles. Um, that makes what I call a good chatter advisor. And, and like the best chatter advisors are not necessarily the people that we're closest to. So there are many people in my life that I love a great deal and that love me. I don't talk to them about my chatter, right? There are like three people I go to to talk. I've got like a board, a chatter advisory board, three people for personal stuff, four for professional. And I'm extremely deliberate about how I approach them. And so I think that's an important um, thing for listeners to know. That's a good one. I'll tell you that the way that I view that is um, dumping your garbage on someone else's lawn. Mm. And for a moment, you might feel good about the fact that your garbage can is empty. But then you kind of feel bad that your garbage is all over their lawn. And they're certainly not happy that your garbage is all over their lawn. Yeah, yeah. And, and the garbage is still there, most important. It's exactly right. Got, the garbage no, didn't, so, didn't go away. So you want to find something that you could share with, but you want to get rid of the garbage, essentially. And um, and so that it turns out that that can be, that can be a little tricky. All right. Uh, question two, assuming that you want others to find you, to interact with you, that are either interested in this, this area or have something to contribute, um, where would people that are listening to this connect with you? They can go to my website, www.ethancross, with a K, K-R-O-S-S, dot com. And they get everything they want to know about the book and me and my lab there. Easy peasy. Uh, final question, are there any materials besides chatter, of course, that you would um, recommend for people to get uh, deep on the topic? Uh, you know, I, the book that I read, you know, several times, uh, every time I teach a course on this topic is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. So if you're generally interested in, in the power of the mind um, to, to heal and, and um, how it can work under adversity, check that book out. I think it's nice. Cool. Thank God you didn't say thinking fast and slow. <laughs> okay um so dr cross this is this is the end um thank you very much uh you know you know what's really strikes me is the depth of knowledge that you have and it really gives me um a high degree of confidence as i address the inner voice that i'm actually doing in, 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 a, in a constructive way in a science-backed research-backed way it's super helpful. So look, I appreciate you being um, generous with your time and, and coming on and talking about this. Yeah, this was, was super fun. So thanks for having me. Um, it, was, it was a delight. This has been Intangibles. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and many other podcast platforms. You can also find it at its home on the web, which is www.intangiblespodcast.com. I'm Steve Berg. Thank you. Keep an eye out for the next episode.